I always get a little melancholy when we finish up a series. We have been going through First and Second Thessalonians, and today is the last verse of uh, verses that we're going to look at in that wonderful book of Second Thessalonians. Next week, uh, our wonderful intern Jack Stoffer is going to bring forth the Word of God, and then in two weeks, Lord willing. Uh, this side of heaven, this is our plan. Uh, we're going to begin uh, the Paul's letter to the Philippians. My plan is to continue to, uh, preaching through Philippians with occasional breaks uh, for vacation and things like that and visiting uh, pastors um, in October and then picking up and going through the Gospel of Luke in November in time for the Advent season. And that will probably take us for a couple of years. And then the book of Revelation. So don't leave the church for the next five years, and we'll finish out the New Testament here. But we're going to turn our attention this morning to 2 Thessalonians 3, 16 through 18. And you might recall that Paul is dis, uh, dealing with some disciplinary issues. Uh, there are some people here who are the disruptive idol. They are, they are breaking the shalom, that peace, the harmony that comes through a relationship with God uh, in the church. Uh, and we all have, as we were introduced to the term, the German term last week, uh, we all have shishunk. We have a longing desire, a groaning for shalom. If you apply those two principles, uh, that is something that we always want. We are seeking to have that sort of God-given harmony. And what you're going to see today is Paul is closing out. He's addressed some very heady issues, some very big issues uh, in the church of Christ. Uh, and uh, and as, as he's writing to uh, the Thessalonians here, and as he is wrapping up, he wants to give them a benediction. And in that benediction, he wants to get apart God's blessings of peace and upon grace on the church of Jesus Christ. So as we, uh, as we turn to your scriptures now, let me go to prayer and then we will read these uh, three verses and uh, I'll give you some commentary on them. Lord, we too turn to you, Lord. It is our groaning desire. It is our shishunk uh, for us to be able to experience shalom. And, and so often we don't. Uh, we, we should be able to walk in peace because of the grace we're under, but we're so easily distracted. We're so prone to anxiety and to depression and discouragement because we put our hope in the things of this world and because we don't walk in a spirit of faith and contentment. Lord, Lord, slap us today with the truth of Holy Scripture, this expectation of peace and grace for the Christian and grow us up in the faith so that we can experience shalom. And as the church of Jesus Christ help restore shalom to a some way in this fallen world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, please turn to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Let me read that text to you right now. God says, and the Apostle Paul say, uh, writes, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is the distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. As we look at this, we're going to see uh, the granting of peace in verse 16. Then something of a, a parenthetical interruption here, a, a greeting of distinction 
in verse 17 and a giving of grace in verse 18. You might find your home group helps insert of assistance to you and give you a little opportunity for taking notes or whatever you might want to do in those uh, spaces and also has some questions that you might want to reflect upon uh, later on. But first of all, the granting of peace here. He, go, he says here now he's making a transition. He's going to go from command uh, to the benediction and the prayers. He's wrapping up this letter here. And then he, and he says, peace, 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 peace. Now, again, there are confusing understand, there's a confusion and a misunderstanding about what peace means because the peace that the world claims is very different from the peace that we are to experience as Christians. Let me read to you what one commentator said as he defined this peace. True spiritual peace is completely different from the superficial, uh, ethereal, fragile human peace it is the deep-seated confidence that all is well between the soul and God because of his loving, sovereign control over one's life, both in time and eternity. That calm insurance is based on the knowledge that sins are forgiven, grace. Blessed, blessing is present, good is abounded even in trouble, and heaven is ahead. The peace that God gives his beloved children as their possession and privilege has nothing to do with the circumstances of life. Now, that is an important definition because it is our tendency to say, yeah, I'll have peace as soon as I accomplish X, Y, Z, as soon as I'm giving X, Y, Z, as soon as this person is out of my life, as soon as this person is into my life, as soon as my grade point average goes up, as soon as I get that promotion, we're always doing this conditional. It's like we have, we have a wish list that when it, once it's granted, we will have peace. But folks, you won't. You won't because peace of this world is never consistent. You basically can numb yourself for a little while, but if you're putting your hope in your circumstances, you are not going to experience peace. But the power of a sanctified life, of a life that is directed by the Holy Spirit according to God's holy word, is the attainment of peace, or at least a growing attainment of peace. Let me give you a great example here. Probably one of the, the great burdens for some of us is, is uh, our children, our grandchildren, what's happening in our families. And we just see this, this cultural appropriation, the culture just influencing our homes in so many ways. And, and we kind of feel sometimes that, that we're failing, right? I want to go all the way back to the Old Testament to uh, 1 Samuel in chapter 3. You remember that Samuel was introduced as a child. He's there. He, uh, he's even dressed like a little priest. Eli was the high priest at the time. He was a godly man, but his children were apostate. They had literally introduced fornication as perhaps part of the ceremonies for offering sacrifice to God. It was said of Eli's sons that they lay with women at the in the doorway of the tent of meeting. I can't imagine a more blasphemous way of doing things. And yet Eli was a godly man. He was a godly man. Samuel had visions. Samuel had dreams. He was hesitant to tell Eli what the dreams were. But Eli was a discerning man and he forced Samuel, Samuel's hand in the matter. And Samuel said, here's the vision, here's the dream. Your, your house is going to fail. And the sins of your sons are not going to be forgiven. And your house is going to be wiped out. Now here's a man who's devoted his life to ministry. Who loves God. But his family has been a dumpster fire. 
to put, use a mod, modern term. And he is going to lose all of that. And for a Jew, the, the, the future generations is everything. And it, it's all going to be cut off because of the sin of his sons. Remember what Eli's response is? Do you remember what Eli's response is? It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It is the Lord. Let him do good what, se- what seems good to him. In other words, I am under grace and therefore I can have peace even though my whole family is going to be judged by God. That's powerful. That's an extreme example. If Eli could have that kind of peace, how can we not have that kind of peace? We are not dependent on circumstances. That's the power of Holy Spirit given peace. Now, we fail all the time. But that is the goal for us to continue on. Paul has given this in a benediction. It's a prayerful declaration of blessing. He wouldn't say, may peace and grace be with you if it was not possible in this life to be able to experience those at least most of the time. And again, this is the way Paul is always emphasizing this this principle of peace and grace. He normally has it the other way around, though. He normally starts with grace and ends with peace. We see this even in the introduction of this particular letter. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but it was a common, uh, and this was also a common practice among the apostles. It's not just Paul. This isn't just some kind of, if it was just Paul, that'd be fine. Paul's inspired uh, by, the, by the, uh, the Holy Spirit to write scripture. Listen to what Peter says, Second Peter 2, 1, the beginning of that wonderful letter. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. How about the other apostles? Let's try John. At the opening of Revelation, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to God to, uh, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, the reason why Paul probably turned those around, usually it's grace then peace, now it's here, it's peace and grace, is because he has talked about some really, really heavy stuff in this letter. He is dealing with some issues. He's dealing with some false teaching that has to be corrected here. He's talked about the destruction of the wicked in hell. In chapter 1, that's a pretty grim topic. Christ's return and judgment in chapter 2, the coming of great apostasy of the church and the rise of Antichrist. We could stop there. <laughs> but he's also dealing with church discipline, the people that are troubling the shalom of the church here. So he wants to emphasize peace, peace, peace. If we are living in the light of his return as we should be, we can experience this peace. And the other emphasis is this is where Paul's Jewishness comes out. You know, even today, you go to Israel, shalom, shalom, they greet you, shalom. A a harmony that's given to you from God, a peace from above. This is, Paul is really emphasizing that Jewish uh, emphasis on peace first and then on grace. But Paul closes first letter with a benediction in First uh, uh, Thessalonians five twenty three, beginning. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And as here, now may expresses a wish or desire. And as here, Himself, God Himself, is actually in the emphatic position. It's the first thing in in the Greek sentence. Now in Greek. Greek doesn't have word order like English does, you know, where you have to have uh, subject, object, verb, subject, verb, object. Uh, What's most important to the Greek writer is at the beginning of the sentence. So in the Greek, this this would actually say himself, the Lord of peace. 
So he's, he's trying to emphasize the fact that it's God who is the provider of the field. He accomplished your peace. It is his own actions who work directly in the believer's life. So much so that he's identified as the God of peace. That's who we worship. The God who gives peace. He is the definition of peace. Peace comes through him. Now, and this can happen for the Christian because once we're saved, no longer, we're no longer fighting against God. We're walking into peace with him. Uh, this is the great experience of the Christian life. As John Stott says, God is the author of harmony. Now, I, I keep emphasizing that because our experience is not always, does not always line up with that. So we need to ask ourselves, how come it is that we don't experience this kind of peace here? Paul changes the statement a bit, uh, but now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace here. Notice this with this, this reference to Lord. Again, that is the word curios. He has taken that from the Septuagint, the Greek translations of the Old Testament. He's basically saying that what was said of Yahweh in the Old Testament applies to Jesus Christ. This is an early indication that the Christian church taught the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. Okay, that's another one of those hills that's worth dying on. He says here he wants you to grant, continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Now, again, that's a, that's a conviction for us, but it's also some hope. What is this idea of continue? In all of life, both temporarily and experientially, you can have peace in every, every single circumstance. That excludes nothing. No moment and no difficulty can be too much for you to experience peace. It is actually obtainable. It is difficult for a people who are soft, who have devoted so much of their lives or the way your parents may have raised you seem to be devoting you from the avoiding the very things that are actually going to cause you to have the maturity to be able to experience that peace. But the, and this peace comes from God and, and, and the Son, but also the Holy Spirit. As one commentator says, the Father decreed peace, the Son purchased peace, and the Holy Spirit brings peace. Peace is your birthright as a Christian. God, positionally, through Jesus Christ, has removed the chaos, the enmity, the warfare that you have in the spiritual in your spiritual war against God. He has brought peace to you. He's adopted you as a child. It is our birthright to have peace. Don't give up your birthright because you've enjoyed too much the pleasures of the sin. Because you love the comfort of self-pity. Because you have long so avoided circumstances that would actually cause you to grow up and be able to experience this peace. Again, this is a consistent truth throughout Holy Scripture. Zechariah's blessing of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. So you can have peace because you have grace. Because of the tender mercy of God, which with the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to do what? To guide our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace. Jesus himself said in John 14, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit from the Father, will, will send, the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I've said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you. 
Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's a command. It's gracious the way he's stating it. But it's actually, it is possible that your heart not be troubled, that you not be experiencing fear, because God has gifted you with the birthright of peace. Now, again, you've got to be careful how you define it. The world sees peace as the absence of strife, to escape uh, you know, from something. Uh, and, and basically, though, that th- those ways of the world often create less peace. We are, by nature, not at peace because we covet what everybody else has. We are always comparing ourselves with others, whether it's looks or money or cars or whatever it might be, property, success, popularity. I mean, there's just no end to what we covet. So, and that is going to leave you, Christian, with a lack of peace. You will not experience shalom. And when you as individuals are not experiencing shalom, you're going to bring that into the community and the whole church is going to suffer. We know this from the Apostle James. James chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you in the community but also in your own heart? Is, it not, is the source not your pleasures that wage war on your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it in your pleasure, on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we are not experiencing this peace, it's a little red flag to say, I'm acting like a worldling. We need to ponder, why am I disrupted in heart right now? Now, we'll get to reasons in just a minute. But but what is it that you're coveting? What is it what is it that you're groaning for, Sheshunk, that's not actually lawful, that's not actually part of God's will? What is it that's making you a malcontent? You need to go to school on your sin. Sin is a great schoolmaster. Isaiah reflects this same idea that the expectation of peace, but how the wicked do not have peace, Isaiah 57. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And this is one of the sad things about all of this, the pride movement, the, the, the militant, revolutionary zeal that people have for this and it's really a search for peace it's a search for peace if the people in the lbgt community want peace they need to come here there is no religion on the planet that's going to that's going to give them peace but christianity alone because they need grace and those of us who've received grace are not going to judge them if we had had some of the same upbringing, some of the great experience, if we had grown up in a culture that encourages perversion, would we maybe not be in that same kind of situation? Only Christianity offers grace, forgiveness, every sin, no matter how wrong it is, if you're a Christian, it's nailed to the cross. And yet, they do the very opposite. They fight against God. They demand their right for sin. And that, that's just one example. It happens to be June, so you know, next month it might be another example. Thomas Watson says this. This is brilliant. Thomas Watson is the most quotable Puritan. When I grow up, I'm going to be Thomas Watson. 
The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but ignorance of its danger. That's so profound. I want you to, I'm going to read it again. The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but the ignorance of his danger. This is the danger of wokeism. Because wokeism says the very things the Bible says you shouldn't do, we want you to do. And the very things that you should do, we don't want you to do. They basically, they basically put the, the good housebreaking seal of approval on evil. And they're trying to, to basically come up with a new commandment that is opposite of the Ten Commandments. And people who are steeped in that, who are indoctrinated in that, will end up ignorantly... Maybe at peace at times, but it's because they don't know the real truth. A lot of times people in darkness don't know they're in darkness. So to know true peace, you actually have to know the Lord of peace himself. It's interesting. After Jesus died, rose from the dead, his first appearance, do you remember? His first appearance in the upper room to all the gathered disciples. Do you remember what the first thing is that he said? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, that ain't just a greeting. He actually made it possible. Peace be with you. He's given the same kind of benediction that Paul has given to the Thessalonians here. The first words. It's so much like what Paul's doing here. so much like the, uh, the wonderful, ironic benediction of Numbers, Sector 6. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Those are not empty words. It is a blessing from the authority of Scripture. And then he says here, the Lord be with you all. Again, here's another one of those wonderful markers towards understanding the the divinity of Jesus Christ. Paul actually is probably quoting Ruth chapter 2. You remember that wonderful, Ruth is such a great book. In the class I teach, uh, Introduction to the Bible at... uh, at Anderson University, we actually act out the book of Ruth. I take all those helmets and hats out of my study and we dress them up and uh, just to be silly. And they act out the book of Ruth, you know. And then uh, and we go through the meaning of it and, and that kind of thing. But this is one of the, it's actually one of the lines we use here. Boaz, that, he's that wonderful single guy businessman who never found time for love, you know. And you're like rooting for Boaz. And here comes you, Ruth, who's followed her mother-in-law and everything. But there's this beautiful scene there where the workers are coming to his field. And he's a good boss. He's one of those bosses who actually cares about his people. He's not just trying to milk them for everything he's worth so he can buy a new car, new chariot. Uh, he's coming to his, his workers are coming to him. And, and he says this. Now, behold, it says here uh, in Ruth. But now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said, may the Lord bless you. Lord is Yahweh. Lord here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Another example of, of Paul pointing to, uh, the, pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, but also that he is the Lord of peace. Now, you're not always experiencing peace. I'm not always experiencing peace. Um, it, it, it's hard sometimes. Uh, joy, for instance, is not my natural inclination. And in two weeks, I'm going to start the book of Philippians. A lot of y'all are very familiar with the book of Philippians. You've recently gone through it. I think the word joy is mentioned or rejoice is mentioned 16 times in Philippians. No preacher likes to be a hypocrite. So I am doing extra work on joy. Uh, 
Josiah uh, put me onto a book, uh, the, the autobiography of C.S. Lewis. It's titled Surprised by Joy. You know, so I'm trying to read that so I could be more like him and more like the way we're supposed to be. We all struggle with this. We struggle with peace. You're not going to have joy unless you have peace. Let me suggest to you some reasons why you might not be having peace. I'm always hesitant to do this because it's, it's like uh, I've had this conversation with somebody in our church. You go to a conference sometimes, and the, the sort of sometimes not so subtle message from the conference speaker is, you'd really have your act together if you were more like me. You know, that just irritates me. You know, the other thing that irritates me is this idea, this formula approach to life. If you just do A and B, C is going to come. And if it doesn't, well, there's just something wrong with you. You're not a regular person. The formula I found in life is that pudding is A equals snakehead. I mean, it just makes no sense. There's no formula to life sometimes. There's principles of Scripture, but it's so easy to preach a formula. It is so hard to actually practice it in so many ways. But let me suggest to you. That's, that's enough qualifiers, right? Okay. Why are you not experiencing peace? You got to start with this. And, and I'm talking to people online too. You may not be a Christian. You may have been raised in church, but you may not actually be a Christian. You may not have the Holy Spirit in you. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, remember that you were once separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. He's talking to, to, to uh, Greeks and how they're folded into the covenants with the Jews now. But it, the principle applies to non-Christians as well. Uh, to the strangers, the covenants are promised, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, great transition, in Christ, you must be a Christian. You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Because he abolished the enmity that was in us, that was through our flesh. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and preached peace to you who were near. For through him we have our access in one spirit to the Father. So that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. you got to be a Christian to experience this kind of peace. You have to be a Christian. To have, because without being a Christian, you don't have forgiveness. And without forgiveness, you don't understand grace. And you got to have grace to experience peace. Become a Christian. Isn't that, those of you who became a Christian and you remember, you were old enough to remember, is, wasn't it this groaning desire of peace that brought you to the Christ? Isn't that what the, the, as the Puritans would say, the hound of heaven used to draw you to himself? This, 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 there's something missing. What is it? What is it? And he wouldn't let go until you, until you fell at the foot of the cross. If you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian today. You need to become a Christian today. Frankly, this is all irrelevant if you don't. Because you're not going to be able to muster this kind of peace. You know, if you, if you want the peace of the world, go get a bottle of port. Is what C.S. Lewis would say. All right. So if you're not a Christian. All right. If you are a Christian, you are in habitual sin. This is... These are the first questions you need to ask yourself. Why, am I, why is there turmoil in the heart? Let me start asking questions. Am I a Christian? Am I in habitual sin? Thomas Watson said this, if you would have peace, make war with sin. If you make peace with sin, you're going to have war. Isn't that interesting? 
Grieving the Holy Spirit causes a lack of peace. And, and so what God has to do to get you back on track is he's got to separate from you. you gotta, there's a longing. There's something missing. He, the Holy Spirit does that. Look, if your child was super irresponsible with money, would you give him more money? No, you actually take money away from him until he learns to be responsible. So if you're irresponsible with the use of your body, the use of your mind, the use of your mouth, God's not going to bless what you're doing. You're going to realize something's wrong. That, by the way, breaks down with the federal government because if you're irresponsible, you actually get more. Um, but, but, you know, let's not go down that road. All right. Am I actually a Christian? Am I habitual sin? And let me just give you one more. Am I in prayer? Prayer is the vehicle that accesses all this. And when you're not in prayer, nothing positionally has changed. You just don't remember that this is the standard, right? It opens the storehouse of peace that's available to you. Philippians 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You think he's trying to make a point? Let your gentle uh, spirit be known by all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. You want the peace of God that's beyond all comprehension? You got to go to the Lord in prayer and supplications and what? Thanksgiving. Ungrateful people are not people who experience peace. You know, we just had this great week, and Nancy and I were driving back down the mountain, and uh, we're exhausted. You know, it's like wedding, Bon Clark and wedding, beach. We're just, you know, uh, my yard looks like a Nebraska wheat field right now. Uh, we just can't seem to get the other things done. And, and yet, we, just, we were just talking about, we just started talking about, wow, we had some great meals. What, didn't we have fun with the Karufis and, and, and the Stauffers and Howard? You know, what great worship we had, some really good sermons, you know, and even the debate you know, was, was good. The air conditioning was good. We got to go, we got to go see Henderson, but you know, you just start counting, you start counting the things you should be grateful for. They far overwhelm the things you should be ungrateful for, but you won't have peace. Ungrateful people just don't experience peace. There is a, there is a gnawing discontentment. So whether you're, if you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, but you're struggling with this area, you just need to remember what Jesus said. Now, you know, can Jesus lie? No, he's like the Lord of truth, right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's the birthright of a Christian to have rest for their souls, to live in peace. Now, Paul kind of makes a little parenthetical statement here in verse 17, which is, uh, seems out of order, but it really makes sense if you think about him closing up these last two letters here. He says here, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is my distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So normally, Paul, like most ancient writers, they would use a, a, a amanuensis or a, or a secretary to write the letter. We actually know the name of the secretary who, who uh, penned the letter to the Romans. Uh, he closes with, uh, as Paul's giving uh, greetings to everybody in the church of Rome, he's, uh, he says here, I, uh, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So we know this was his practice, and it makes sense. He's, he's, trying to, he's re basically reciting the letter while uh, Emmanuensis is writing it down here. So that's been happening to this point. But then Paul takes the pen from the secretary, and he signs off personally. 
And, and he did this in the, in, the, in the book of Galatians too. He says here in the end of Galatians, see with what large writers I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, now, the, the reason why he's doing this, remember part of the problems in the Thessalonian church, also the problems in Galatian church, is false teachers came in. In particular, they were saying the day of the Lord's already come, uh, and, uh, and or the Lord's going to come right now, so you can quit your job and goof off and sponge off everybody, this kind of thing. And evidently, it came to them in a false letter, supposedly from the apostle Paul. So Paul's saying, let me, let me help you with this. I'm going to sign this so you can see my handwriting. So you get another letter that says, by the way, only people with brown eyes go to heaven. You can say, wait a minute, that doesn't have Paul's name at the bottom of it. So that's kind of why he's doing here. But, but, but the bigger issue here is I want that to give you confidence in God's word. Of all the virtues of Christianity that we embrace, honesty is at the top, right? Truthfulness is at the top. Uh, uh, Jesus says here, if you continue my word, you are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So as you're reading these texts in the scripture and you're quoting, how do we ever get these texts? Whatever happened? You hear these things like, oh, Constantine decided who's what's going to be in the Bible in the year 320. There's so much untruth out there. You just need to know here that we can have confidence that this really is from Paul, really is inspired by the Holy Spirit, really is God's word. So every word in here is true. So the, the, this little kind of odd parenthetical break that Paul makes for the sake of the Thessalonians actually end up blessing us. The early church testified to the use of the Pauline letters, and they compiled it as part of the canon. What does canon mean? It's a measuring rod. The standard for understanding the Bible uh, is called the canon. The Muratorian canon dated from 170 only about 100 years after this event, it lists all 13 of Paul's letters, including 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Earliest known writings of Christian leaders, including 2nd century figures such as Ignatius, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus, cite Paul's letter as being sacred. So within, if Paul had had a grandchild, within the life of the grandchild, these had already been accepted as appropriate scriptures. So you need to have some holy confidence that what God's given you. Uh, as we look here at this greeting of distinction. Now we have this giving of grace in verse 18. He closes the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you all. Grace is God's loving favor to those who deserve his hostility and wrath. You know, pe people say, I just want God to get me what I deserve. No, you don't. <laughs> that is the last thing you want. You've earned hell and much more than that. What you want is grace. You want God's loving favor to those who deserve his hostility and wrath. This, the standard, it, what's also interesting here is, again, again, it gives you this, the difference between Christianity and every other faith and the counter-cultural counter view of Christianity. The standard, if I was writing an ancient letter in, to someone in Rome 2,000 years ago, I would have closed with Eroso, be strong, Alexander, be strong, be strong. Grace is just the opposite. Grace is Christ was strong when we were weak. So he doesn't close with be strong like everybody else does. He closes with grace. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. It's a little insulting. Uh, first, uh, understanding our need for grace. 
you know, we want to be part of the beautiful people and part of the accepted crowd, and we want to show people our, our education and our nice clothing and our properties and things like that. But here's the fact. One reason why you're here is because you realized you didn't have your act together. You were not strong. You were in need of grace. First, he tells, Paul tells the Corinthians that, right? For consider your calling brethren. They're not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If, if this was a modern southern paraphrase, he could probably sum it up by saying, mostly the church is a bunch of rednecks. But he brings them in, cleans them up, and he makes them sons of the Most High God. So that doesn't mean to be an insult to you, but praise God you didn't have your act together like you've always wanted to have your act together. Because you were, that allowed you to give God the credit for your salvation instead of yourself. And then he says here, you know, he, he says that this, as with peace from above, this grace is for you all. Now that's, again, if this was the modern Southern, it would say y'all, grace to y'all, or in the plural of y'all, all y'all, grace to all y'all. Now that's, that's significant. You remember who he's writing to? Remember when Paul wrote a letter, what did they do? They would take, the pastor would probably receive the letter and they would read it to the whole church on a Sunday morning. Okay? Who's sitting in that church? Really wonderful Thessalonians who are suffering for the faith. And those troublemakers. The disruptive idol. And Paul intentionally doesn't say grace to you. He says grace to all y'all. He knows the disruptive idol are in there. But he wants them to know the power of grace as well. So it's the troublemakers. It's the Really active church members, it's the not active church members, it's the, it's the people who are charitable, and it's the people who are sponging off of that charity. It's for all y'all, all y'all. So we conclude this letter the way it began, in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but only in reverse order. Harry Ironsides was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian for uh, many years. Rick Phillips kind of has his, his uh, inherited his legacy now. And he tells this amazing story uh, about the, uh, the Civil War, the war between the states, if you're a Southerner. And, uh, and basically, it was outside, out on the outskirts of Virginia. A troop of Union cavalry were, were heading north. And all of a sudden, this man pops out of the woods. And he was in a tattered gray uniform. And the man says, you got to help me. you got to help me. I haven't eaten in two weeks. Do you have any food? I'm starving. Well, the kind of startled Union cavalry commander says, well, why don't you just go walk to Richmond? There's plenty of provisions there. You know, he gets the food. He says, well, I can't. Because two weeks ago, I was so discouraged about our losses and the defeat of the Confederacy, I jumped into these woods, and I've been hiding here for three weeks. And the officer looked to him and said, have you not heard? <laughs> Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse two weeks ago. We're at peace. We're at peace. And the man said, I haven't eaten in three weeks and I could have eaten the whole time because I was not aware of this peace that was available to me. Don't be that man. 
Too many Christians are like that. They're living a life of starvation, not experiencing the peace that's available to them because peace has been made. Reflect on the truth of Katrina von Schegel's hymn, Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and the winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are characterized by peace and grace. And that we are so delighted in the experience of it ourselves, we just can't be quiet about it. I pray for those who don't know Christ, that they would know the peace of Christ because they understand and they, uh, they are saved by the grace of Christ. And for the rest of us who just seem to have a hard time experiencing this, help us to get our eyes on you and not on the world, to be immersed in thankful prayer so that we can enjoy all that you've been given us, but we've been blind to in so many ways. Bless us now with peace and with grace as a church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.